All right. So I'm not a senior pastor here. For those of you who are visiting or whatever, Pastor Tony is our senior pastor, and he is out of town with uh, his wife, Rachel. And by the way, um, Rachel, she gave this book called Next Wave uh, to everybody in the worship band, and I play on the drums sometimes, so I got it. And um, it's written by this guy named Bob Sorge, and he has one chapter about communion, and that's kind of what set all this off. He got me really excited, and I started meditating on it and everything, so I just wanted to thank you, Rachel. I'm looking at the camera because she's in, inside of it. And... Um, <laughs> Um, for handing out that book so I could get all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, if I were Stuart Drees, I would call this teaching a Trinitarian conversation about the eschatological implications of the first advent of the second Adam. <laughs> but I'm Aaron, so I'm calling this teaching the wedding feast of the Lamb. All right, so we're going to look at it. So here's, the, here's where we're starting. Uh, in the book of Revelations, uh, let me just give you this, though. Uh, for those of you who know your Bible really well, you've been reading it for a long time or whatever, you know, th things might pop up in your head like, oh, how come he didn't say this verse or that verse or this verse? And I'm going to tell you, the Bible talks a lot about this wedding feast of the Lamb and things related to it. And so there's no way on earth that I could fit it into a teaching. So this is just exciting to be able to tap into it. So um, as you, on your own, study the Scripture, all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, things about the wedding feast of the Lamb will pop up, things related to it, and you'll just be enriched as you read it. So I'm just happy to share part of it. So we're going to start here in the book of Revelation, way at the end of the Bible. And what's going on is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he's an old man now, and he is a prisoner on an island. Um, and... Uh, God gives him a vision of the future uh, from heaven's perspective. So in this vision, at this one point, all these creatures in heaven, they're, they're so excited about something. They're making this loud noise. This, this vast crowd in heaven is making this super loud noise about something in the future that they're very excited about. So let's look into Revelations 19, 6 through 8, and see if we can guess what heaven is so excited about in the future. It says this, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and the bride has prepared herself she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. All of heaven is excited about this event called the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a celebration kind of of two things. First of all, the first thing is a celebration of Jesus getting everything he ever wanted us. He finally reigns as king of peace physically over a redeemed and purified world. More specifically, he gets to experience the fullness of relationship with us. Prophecies about Jesus call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when he came the first time, 
Uh, he died and he resurrected and he gave us the Holy Spirit and he is with us, he is inside of us. Um, but that's not the fullness of the God with us. That's, that's like a foretaste. It's beautiful and it's amazing. We can experience him in our heart. We can uh, hear his voice and we can obey and, and it's great. We feel his presence sometimes. But that's not the end of it. We are going to be hanging out with Jesus the man face to face. And this is what the wedding feast of the Lamb is going to celebrate. And it's so exciting that all of heaven is rejoicing. Now think about this. All of heaven is already there with Jesus, with God the Father. And they're getting all excited because at this moment in time, God's great plan comes to fruition where God is dwelling with man. Emmanuel, God with us, this unity. So the first thing, it's a celebration of Jesus getting everything he wanted. No more of us seeing through a mirror darkly, as it says. That's, that's what it's like when we try to experience Jesus now. We love it. There's nothing more glorious than knowing you have heard the voice of God uh, or have felt his presence, even though... We still can't see him or anything, and we, we still have a hard time. We read the Bible, and a lot of it doesn't make sense to us, but every time we get a taste of the goodness of God, we get excited. But that's all it is. It's a taste, and there's a time coming where we're getting the fullness of Jesus. <laughs> so the second thing it is a celebration of, it's a celebration of a redeemed earth getting everything she needs. Jesus. That's everything this world needs. Total healing, total renewing, total unhindered love, or just Jesus. That's Jesus is all that. Jesus getting everything he wanted, earth getting everything she needs. It's a celebration, and heaven is going crazy over it. They're like screaming and shouting. Another thing that is exciting about this feast is that, as we saw in that passage, the bride has prepared herself in beauty. She prepared herself. That's very interesting. So she's ready already when Jesus comes. And this is going to be an important point as we, as we go on. Um, and that beauty, we see, is good deeds. Um, and it, those good deeds has made her absolutely stunning. Um, we see in the scriptures that the, the he heavens are rejoicing over it. So, so she was prepared already before the feast. And here we go. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. So yes, she has made herself ready, but not in her own strength, not with her own resources. She was given the pure white linens. Jesus gives to you this uh, this cloak you could put on, they, it's called Christ. Put on Christ. This is available to you. Pure white linens given to you. Righteousness and good deeds prepared in advance for you. It's a gift, but you don't have to put it on. You can walk around in your own stank if you want to, but you can walk in the beauty of righteousness and good deeds. It's a gift. And we see that in the generation that the Lord returns, the bride will be walking in a major way in beauty. And here's a verse to back that up. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Um, for those of you who are new to the idea of Christianity, 
Um, there's a bunch of baloney on TV and books and whatever for generations, ever since Jesus was around, that says that you got to be good before you can uh, be a Christian or come to God or go to church. Pfft, nobody's good. Um, it is by grace you have been saved. God's grace through faith, meaning you have decided to believe in Jesus. And this is not from yourselves. You had nothing to do with it except for deciding to receive the gift. It says it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. So in other words, he is he's our father. He's all these things to us, these beautiful things. He's also a seamstress. He has created this beautiful wedding dress for the bride of Christ. Please put this on. It'll make you look really good. So this event called the Wedding Feast of the Lamb happens when the bride is ready to receive her king and when the king has come to reign on the earth. Does this remind you of any particular Christmas song? How about this one? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. I had to look that up. I don't, that's old English. I don't know what that means. What? Let men their songs employ. Basic, actually, my kids figured it out before I did. It just means let dudes sing. Like let, let people sing about this topic that the Savior reigns. And then it says, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. In other words, let people sing praise to God for he reigns and let all of creation join in that celebration. Let, uh, it says, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And he rules the world with truth and grace and this line is so dope. I never noticed it until this year. He makes the nations, that's you, prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. He picks you. You're like, I'm nobody. Yeah, you got that right. But guess what? He chose you to prove the wonders of his love and the glories of his righteousness. So, Rachel pointed this out a couple weeks ago, but have you ever noticed that joy to the world is both a celebration of Jesus' first coming and his second coming? All together, all at once. And here's what's interesting about that. It's actually a biblical approach. A ton of biblical prophecies about the coming of Jesus, and there are loads of them throughout all of Scripture. Um, a ton of biblical prophecies about the coming of Jesus do not distinguish between the first and second coming. Isn't that interesting? Just like joy to the world. It's, it's like it mixes it all up. It's, so, it's like heaven's perspective on this thing. Perhaps it is because they complete each other. When we celebrate the first coming, we are celebrating the second coming. It, like they're totally related. Uh, here's an example. This is actually part of this. It's something we use on Christmas all the time. It's written hundreds of years before Jesus came, and it addresses his first coming and a second coming. It's Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged 
the nation and increase their joy. That would be the nation of Israel, which, by the way, this hasn't happened yet, so this is second coming stuff. Um, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at a harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Again, Israel right now still under a burdensome yoke. They will be delivered. Um, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Jesus is going to take away all this. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Israel still experienced a lot of war. And there's, the Bible says some really bad wars coming to Israel in the future. We get some details about it. But there's going to be a time when they take all their bloodied garments of war and throw them in the fire because they are not going to need them anymore. Right? This is promises of second coming. But then it says this. This is all the same passage. It goes right into this very next line of this prophecy about Jesus' coming. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He will destroy the oppressors of Israel. He will rule from the throne of David over all the earth in Israel, and he will increase Israel's borders. That's all second coming. And for to us, a child is born. That's first coming. The first coming makes the second coming possible. From heaven's perspective, it seems to be a single event because they are so tied together. And even though it was a joke in the beginning, let me break down what would have been Stuart Grease's title. A Trinitarian conversation, meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do they talk about this amongst each other? Well, we see um, in the scriptures that whenever Jesus is coming, not every time, but often when Jesus is coming is uh, talked about, it's talked about all mixed together. So a Trinitarian conversation about the eschatological implications. That means how end time stuff relates to the first advent means the first coming of the second Adam, who is Jesus. So how does heaven talk about the first coming of Jesus? It talks about it in complete relation with the second coming of Jesus because it's so related. And the wedding feast of the Lamb is going to be this fantastic celebration. All right. Go back to my notes here. So what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, it actually does the same thing. It alludes to the wedding feast of the Lamb in Jesus' second coming, while at the same time celebrating the first coming, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the shedding of blood for our sins. Um, as a side note, we know from the Lord's Supper, uh, like when he's actually there with his disciples, we know that the wedding feast of the Lamb is not just metaphorical or spiritual. There will be an actual feast uh, with real wine and real bread. Um, let's, let's read about that and see how, how we know this. Matthew 26, 26 to 29. This is Jesus. It, they call it the Lord's Supper. He's celebrating Passover with his disciples, Passover Seder. Actually, I hope that many of you get to 
have a Passover Seder this coming year. It's so rich. So Jesus is celebrating Passover Seder, and he says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So he was having physical wine, physical bread, along with the rest of the Passover Seder elements, lamb and so forth. Um, he points out these two specific things, which we've then taken for thousands of years, and we're like, well, Passover Seder is once a year. Let's just celebrate these elements all the time, the blood, the body. So we do what we call communion, which is just two of those elements. But he says, here I am. This is my last communion with you guys. This is my last Passover Seder until, until we all get together again. So we're going to have this physical celebration of Jesus getting everything he wants, which is us, and of the earth getting everything she needs, which is him. And it's going to be a physical thing. So the Passover, uh, Seder, which is where communion comes from, those first elements, uh, obviously, um, hold on, let me look at my notes. I want to not jump ahead. All right, yeah, yeah, so we know, maybe you don't know, I'll tell you if you don't know, whatever. So the Passover Seder uh, initially is about like looking back on this beautiful metaphor that Jesus set up for the Israelites. Uh, they were, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and uh, so God was going to deliver them. He's going to take them out of slavery and bring them into uh, their own and give them victory and prosperity and all this stuff. But in order to do that, they had to uh, take a blood of a lamb, and they had to kill the lamb, and they had to put the blood on their doorposts, and they had to eat this ceremonial meal, which is the Passover. And so what happened is the death angel came over, and everybody who didn't do that, the firstborn died, and then... Uh, Pharaoh was like, get out of my country. And they walked in victory and freedom. They had their own identity. It was a beautiful thing. And Jesus says, um, celebrate this forever, this, this ceremony. But then we see that, oh, that was just a shadow. That was a symbol for the big sacrifice lamb that is Jesus who died on the cross. He was our sacrifice lamb and he set us free from captivity into total everlasting freedom. So really, the Passover was always about the sacrificed lamb that is Jesus. And the sacrificed lamb that was used in the time of Moses was just symbolic all along. Everything has always been about Jesus. And even when we celebrate, it's called the wedding feast of the lamb. It's still, it's not it's called the wedding feast of of the Lion of Judah, which he is also that. It's not the wedding feast of the King of Kings, but he's always that. It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb because it celebrates the first coming and the second coming. What was made possible through the blood of Jesus, it looks back on the suffering of Jesus that we might come into freedom and victory in the power of Jesus. So we now know why it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb and not the wedding feast of the Lion of Judah, as I said. It is a celebration of what was made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. 
But now let's look at why it's called the wedding feast and why we are called the bride. Uh, by the way, uh, Caleb Calderon, we, we were talking about this sometime, and uh, he's like, I'm not a bride. And I was like, Caleb, you're the brightiest of them all. And he was like, no, no, no. So next week I told him, no, Caleb, I'm the brightiest of them all. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get to that in a second, and we're going to learn what it means to be the bride of Christ because it might seem a little bit awkward because sometimes we sing these songs about bride, and if you're a dude, you're like, Ugh, it's a little uncomfortable. But we're going <laughs> to... We're going to see what it's really all about in a minute. But let me show you this. We've talked about this in the past. Um, So when Jesus is celebrating this ancient meal, this Passover Seder with his disciples, from which we get communion, and then it looks forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, um, he, he does something which suddenly turns this ceremony about uh, the sacrificed lamb and stuff into a wedding invitation. And you might have heard this before, or if, if you know Jewish tradition, then you already know this, but a lot of you might not. So I'm going to share it. This is from a website called Heroes, Heroine, and History. Anyway, you can find it on a million websites. This is just the website where I found it. It says, talking about wedding customs of ancient Israel, when a young man desired to marry a young woman in ancient Israel, he would prepare a contract or covenant to present to the young woman and her father at the young woman's home. The contract showed his willingness to provide for the young woman and describes the terms under which he would propose marriage. The most important part of the contract was the bride price. Woo, maybe death on a cross. The price that the young man was willing to pay to marry the young woman. If the bride price was agreeable to the young woman's father, the young man would pour a glass of wine for the young woman. If the young woman drank of the wine, it would indicate her acceptance of proposal. So Jesus, all of a sudden, here they are celebrating the sacrificial lamb that brings deliverance. Not only does he say, this represents me, but then he says, bride of Christ, marry me. And they would have known that because this was... So I've even heard from uh, other places that you even say the words, uh, this is my blood, because you're making like a blood covenant with the person that you want to be married to. So I think the disciples would have recognized what he was doing. They might have thought it was weird. They might not have gotten it yet, but they might have certainly recognized it as a wedding proposal. But here's why. We got to look into why. Otherwise, it's still weird. Let's figure out why so it doesn't become weird. Ephesians 5... 25 through 27, and also 31 through 32, says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. For, the, for this reason... This is a quote from Genesis here, but it's, it's in this New Testament passage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So, and you'll see in the notes here, um, God did not point to marriage and say, my relationship with you is kind of like that. He didn't say that. He instead said, by the way, I invented marriage 
to look like my relationship with you. The only reason I created marriage is so that you can have a picture of my relationship with you because I love you so much. I'm giving myself for you. I'm going to wash you with the word. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to have a wonderful relationship with you. This is my desire. Marriage is only a picture of that. So to get a better idea of what that means and to look at the quote from Genesis, we're going to go to Genesis uh, and look at the first wedding and see how this relates to everything we're talking about. Genesis 2, 21 through 24. So the Lord God caused the man, Adam, to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he had taken, that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So here we go. The woman was created through a wound on the man's side. Okay, you following this so far? She came from the man, and that is why all future women leave the father and mother and return to a man. Because they come. This, is, this was the origin of a woman. You come from the wound of a man, and now in future generations, you return to where you came from. Right? The church was created because of a wound on the side of the first man. The first, that is called the second Adam, Jesus, starting it all over again. He was pierced in the side. He was wounded for our transgressions, and the church was born. Crown of thorns, spear in the side, bam, the bride of Christ is born. We came from Jesus that moment. And then at the wedding ceremony of the Lamb, the, the feast, all that, the second coming of Jesus, we will then return to Jesus. Being the bride of Christ has nothing to do with gender it has to do with where we come from, who loves us, and where we're going. Being a son of God has nothing to do with gender. It has everything to do with who your loving father is and what your inheritance is. The bride of Christ and the sons of God are the exact same thing. They're just different metaphors. Tony recently talked about how Jesus, Jesus' first coming, he came to make sons. He came to make ready a bride. Same thing. Um, and I, offered, I often wondered why Jesus did it that way. I mean, because really, Jesus is going to come back one day, and he's going to rule, and he's going to show his glory, and he's going to make everything right. And there's going to be this process of uh, ruling on the earth for a thousand years. There's still corruption, but he's making things better, and he's working with people. And then eventually, he gets rid of all sadness, and everything is beautiful, and there's, all sorrow is gone forever, and everything's perfect in paradise. And uh, so I was like, okay, yeah, I know, Jesus, that you came the first time uh, not to rule in that way, but to rule in hearts and to, you know, to die on the cross for us. And, but why? Like, why not just do it all at once? I, I wondered this. 
But Tony's message a few weeks ago actually helped me to understand about Jesus coming the first time to make sons. And maybe Tony has no idea how much that impacted me because it wasn't even a major point of his teaching. It was just like a little side thing. And here's the deal. In other words, Jesus came to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We saw in Revelations that the bride was ready. The bride was ready, waiting, dressed up, beautiful, ready for the king to come and to be part of this wedding feast. Uh, John the Baptist prepared the people for the first coming. But Jesus himself is preparing us for the second coming. We see that Jesus is giving us the garments, the good deeds. Um, so here, if he were to come and take his rule on the earth without transforming our hearts, here's where it began to make sense to me, then he would be a dictator. He doesn't want to do that. He came to start building a generation of people that are so excited about Jesus, they just can't wait for him. They're ready to serve because they already love him. They want all of him all the time. I mean, it all makes sense now. Jesus could have come and ruled, but what good does that do us? Like, he wants people, he wants relationship. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called sons of God. He wants sons. He wants brides. He wants us in relationship. So just like we did the candle lighting where it spreads little by little, the glory of God impacting our hearts, transforming our hearts, us touching other people and their hearts being transformed until we're all together, until the whole earth has just millions of people all over the place. It's not going to be everybody, but there's going to be a lot of people on this earth that are just longing and excited for the return of Jesus. So when he comes, he's not a dictator. We are going to be rejoicing because he has come. So we know now why it is called the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we know why it is called the wedding feast of the Lamb, but why is it the wedding feast of the Lamb? Why, why use food as a metaphor? Stupid question. Always use food, people. God knows. All right. Even though the Passover, the Lord's Supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb are all physical meals, they represent a spiritual reality. Let's look at a bunch of these verses. Psalms 23, 5, very familiar. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And if you are in Jesus, you get to experience this reality right now, here today. It means don't worry. Don't be anxious about the chaos around you. While things may look dire, God is calling you to feast with him, to relax in him, to enjoy his company. This is a spiritual reality that is available right now. Although, I can't help but wonder if it also alludes to the fulfillment of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Like, I wonder if when this wedding feast happens, all us billions of believers are going to be hanging out of these big, long tables all over the place, like eating what I assume is going to be a Passover Seder, um, and then everybody that opposed God viciously, tired, like Satan himself, in the fire, like we see in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, in the fire looking, and they're like, we hate you, and they're just unable to participate. We're just chilling. We're like hanging out with Jesus, participating in his goodness. I wonder, I wonder if it's, if it's alluding to that. I don't know for sure. We'll find out. But there will be food. Um, here's another one. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Psalms 34, 8. Or this one. He brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. That's Song of Solomon 2, 4. He brought me to his banqueting table. The banquet, the feast, the table, this all represents fellowship, enjoyment, relationship, communion. Oh, that's why we call it communion. We are communing with the Lord, with each other. That's why Jesus tells us to celebrate the Lord's Supper with others. We're going to do that here in a little bit. Here's another one, another spiritual truth using food as a metaphor, Isaiah 55, 2. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches of fare. Meaning there ain't nothing tastier. There ain't nothing that satisfies the soul more than the word of God. And who's the word of God? Yes. All right. So we're going to start winding it down. Uh, I got a few more passages to read. So if we want to go get all the kids um, in the middle classroom and the older classroom um, so that we can all take communion together during the last two songs, that'll be great. But as they're doing that, I'm going to finish with a story about Mephibosheth, my favorite name to say. Mephibosheth. All right, so uh, there's this dude. He is the grandson of Saul, King Saul. King Saul hated David. David was anointed to one day become the king of Israel, and uh, Saul was so jealous. He was currently the king. He couldn't stand David, and so he just hated the man and was always trying to kill him. So years and years later, Saul is dead. He dies in war, and David becomes king, and Mephibosheth is, the, is not only is he the grandson of what everybody called David's enemy. By the way, David never called him an enemy, but everybody else did. Everybody said, this is your enemy, David. He said, this is the Lord's anointed. Anyway, so this dude is the grandson of Saul. He's a cripple in a time with like no technology and nice wheelchairs and all this. Everybody had to take care of him. Um, just try to relate. Do you ever feel, uh, even if you're physically well, do you ever feel like a cripple in this world? Things just aren't working out. Things are difficult for you. So here he is, this broken man, a very young man at this time. Uh, and, and David's cohorts are like, let's uh, establish your throne and kill off all the family of uh, your enemy. And, uh, and so Mephibosheth is probably like, oh, man, I can't even run away because he's, he's a cripple. Anyway, this is what King David says to Mephibosheth. He goes, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belongs to your, father, your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. This is what Jesus does to us. We are broken people, children of the enemy. And he comes to us and he says, I'm going to restore everything you lost. And I want you to eat at my table. Eat at my table. Right? So then, but now this happens to us too. So what happens is Mephibosheth, over time, he's abused. He's lied about. And everything that he had was stripped from him. It was taken away because people were falsely accusing him of things until he's left with nothing. And then years later, here's what happens. This is 2 Samuel 19, 29-30. This is so powerful. The king said to him, so David says to Mephibosheth, after Mephibosheth explains the truth of what happened to him, David says, Why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. In other words, you're getting a bunch of stuff back. Mephibosheth said to the king, 
Let him take everything now that my Lord the King has returned home safely. I don't care. All I want is you. Let Ziba, the one who abused me, he can keep everything he took from me. It's, I don't care. I want you now. I want relationship with you. I want your friendship. I sat at your table. Now I know that all I want is your presence. And that's the point of the first coming of Christmas and the death and resurrection to invite you spiritually to the king's table so that after spending enough time there, after the trials and abuses we face in life, when Jesus comes to make all things right, we'll actually care more about his presence than the recompense he will give us. Let me, let me read. This was not originally in my notes, but I'm going to read the Beatitudes. All right? Because this is what Jesus himself says he's going to give to us. But after reading this, we know what the bride of Christ is really going to say about it. So Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the bride's like, I don't care. I want you. Right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. I want you. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth, I want you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Yes, that's right, because you're coming. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Yeah, but I just want you. You are everything. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, I'm going to see you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Yes, Father, you're coming to me. I get you. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't care. I just want you. I know you want to give me all this stuff. You always, you want to bless me. I just want you. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, yeah, nice. I want you. The Spirit, here we go, last verse. Revelations, this is right at the very end of the Bible. Uh, Chapter 22, verses 17, and also verse 20. Here we go. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God and the bride, that's you. This is is future generation is talking about. The Spirit and the bride, maybe it's not, it's talking about now too, I guess. The Spirit and the bride say, come, come, we want you. The Spirit wants Everything Jesus wants, the Spirit wants him to have it. Spirit wants everything the earth needs for it to have it. Come. The bride says, we want you to just come and let the one who hears, that's you guys now, I'm I'm saying this out loud, I'm reading this passage to you, and you're hearing it, and you're going to agree, and you say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Now, it's that first one, it's saying, Jesus, come. Jesus, come. Now it's saying, if you're thirsty, come. Come. If you're thirsty, And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. This is free for you. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then the whole Bible ends with these words. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I I don't know. Maybe there's another verse. But regardless, amen. (laughs) Come, Lord Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. Um. The band is going to come up, and um, 
going to play two songs. And as these two songs play, anytime during those two songs, you and your family will have an opportunity to come up here. And, you know, we don't have wine or bread, but we have juice and little square things. <laughs> and uh, you can take communion, the Lord's Supper, with your family. If you don't have family with you, then uh, find some, some friends. Or if you see somebody that doesn't have family, welcome them into your group. And uh, let's celebrate what Jesus did on the cross together and look forward to what he's doing in the future. Um, and then one last thing. It would be very jerkish of me to not invite those who are thirsty to come right now. So what that means is if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior and you want a piece of this, you want a drink of this water that satisfies, um, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something a little uncomfortable and just raise your hand and we're going to pray for you and you're going to drink from it today if you want to. So just, I've never done this before because it's always awkward to me to get people to do this. But why, like I said, I'd be a jerk if I did not offer you the free water. So if you want it, just you could raise your hand. And yes, fantastic, beautiful. So rejoice. Re yes, let us rejoice because Jesus is building this family. So here's, you did it. You confessed. So here's, let's pray together. Let's pray together, and you guys receive this. this you're going to live forever with Jesus. You're going to feast with him, and he's going to do beautiful things in your life. So here we go. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for offering me living water that satisfies. I will finally be satisfied in you. Thank you that you are coming to make all things right. I give my life to you wholeheartedly. I am yours, Jesus, here on out. Thank you. Amen. So if you did that today, you, you're saved now. It's a beautiful thing, and we rejoice with you. So let's clap in those salvations. And, and let's praise God together by remembering the cross uh, as we take communion. Like I said, any time in the next two songs. And then you could go after that.